welcome to The Contrarians, where we are right and you are wrong. I'm Julio. And I'm Alex. Here on the show, we rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine. For the first half of each episode, Contrarians Corner, we trash the fresh red tomatoes and praise the rotten green splotches, making our case any way we can. The aptly titled Real Talk serves as the second half of each episode. This is where we discuss our true feelings on the movie we're covering. For more information on our podcast and to browse past episodes, you can head over to our website, wearethecontrarians.com. From there, you can also access our patron and merchandise, because capitalism. If you enjoy our attempts at comedic film discussions, we encourage you to subscribe and leave us a review on whatever podcatcher you use. If you'd like to reach out to us directly, that's what social media is for. You can find us on most platforms as at Contrarian Prime. You can also see what we look like if you go to youtube.com slash at Contrarian Prime, and you can contact us by email at wearethecontrarians at gmail.com. I think that covers it. Then it's time for the podcast. And we are recording for Contrarian's Corner for The Flintstones, the movie, not the TV show. Yeah, but dabba do. I like talking to you. I'm trying to decide when did you use yabba dabba do and when to use Wilma. I guess I'll yell Wilma as we log <laughs> at off the at, the, at the end of the episode. <laughs> uh, hello. Welcome to The Contrarians. I'm Alex. That's Julio. Uh, you mentioned the the TV show. That's as good a place as any to start. Julio, what is your familiarity? What is your prior knowledge of the Flintstones of Fred, Wilma, Barney, and Betty? They They made it to Peru. It was a staple. Uh, at least it feels like it was when I was growing up. But then mm-hmm. as I was watching this movie, I w- honestly, I couldn't tell you how accurate it was to the cartoon because I, I was like, I guess this is what Fred was like. And I guess this is what Barney was like. It was, uh, I don't remember the the characters or even the stories. So honestly, I can't tell you if this is a typical Flintstone story or if it's not, <laughs> but I remember the, the production design, right? Like the, mm-hmm. the, what it, what everything looks like. And, and I remember that Fred was Pedro and Barney was Pablo. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Wilma was Vilma and Betty was Betty. Betty didn't get a, a Spanish name. She got church. Yeah. Churched up there in, in South America. <laughs> and then the, the boss, his name here is Mr. Slate. Is that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he was El Señor Rajuela, which Rajuela is not Slate. I mean, Pedro is not Fred. So I don't know. I don't know what was the the logic there. And uh, sad to report, Halle Berry is not. If she was in the cartoon, she her episodes did not make it to Peru. She eventually made it to Peru, just not not that early. <laughs> That's uh, just now they're airing her episodes there. They just got Monsters Ball. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, pretty similar of. I don't remember ever like I don't remember life without the Flintstones. It was just like a show that was always on TV. And uh, similarly, though, I know the main characters and players involved. Um, Fred. Sounded a lot like uh, John Goodman here. And um, Barney was way more doofy. He was way more Fred. Like, and wait, 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 wait. you're telling me there's a doofier level under Rick Moranis? 
Rick Moranis always comes with a certain level of dignity that you're never quite going to get like that <laughs> Seth Rogen doofy. Uh, but yeah, he's just, Fred, I got money. I got money troubles, Fred. Um, yeah, Mr. Slate and the, of course, the so many things from the show that I remember are usually tied to like the opening theme, which they do a good job of replicating in this movie. The bird that they pull its tail and, you know, it's quitting time. It's the, uh-huh. the, the bell sound. And um, the bowling where he goes up on his toes. That's from the yes. show, too. And they use the, the, sound, the sound drop. Yeah. 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 So. Um, so it's safe to say that whoever made this movie was at least as familiar with the cartoon as you and I were. Exactly, exactly. And I remember you had not seen this movie prior to our viewing for this, had you? No, I've had it over the past few months. I've had it hyped all the way to hell by you. (laughs) And uh, spoiler alert, it lived up to the hype. That's all (laughs) I'm going to say right now. I went and saw this movie with my family. It was 94, so I would have been, what, seven uh, my parents took me and my sister to a drive-in movie theater in the Toledo area where I grew up. And I remember we did not go to the drive-in movie theater that often. Um, maybe if ever besides this, that's why I remember it so well. We went and saw the Flintstones at the at the drive-in. Um, On the way then, back, did your dad order a gigantic rib? Yes. And then the car tipped <laughs> over. And then uh, I'm sure I've seen it at least bits and pieces uh, between now and then. But I don't think I'd ever sat down and watched it cover to cover like I, I did for this. So it was an interesting rewatch. I was like, holy shit, that's Elizabeth Taylor. Uh, <laughs> amongst other things. And do you like puns, Julio? This movie was written by Brandon Curtis. <laughs> no shit. They go to see Tar Wars. I could see him just like howling with laughter at that. <laughs> So it's 1994, at least in movie theaters. It's uh, the Stone Age for John Goodman, Elizabeth Perkins, Rick Moranis, and Rosie O'Donnell. Amongst others, a cast of characters we will get to. It's 23% on Rotten Tomatoes, and that is coming from the average of 48 reviews with an audience score of 25%, a sad bucket of popcorn tipped over. No one no one can have fun, man, I'm telling you. So... <laughs> Julio, what did you pull? What what were the critics saying about this, either at the time or have said about it since? I'm gonna assume these are all from from the release time. Is at 25 percent on audience score. I'm just like, does anybody even talk about this movie? Do they care? Does anybody talk about the Flintstones overall? You know what killed the franchise? And probably get to this into real talk. But uh, uh, when they did the sequel and they cast uh, Stephen Baldwin as Barney. Yes. That's just like the <laughs> the final nail in the coffin. And uh, um, Jenna Maroney as Betty. Oh, wow. No, I did not know that. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. Rotten quotes from this first attempt at the live action Flintstone movie. We're going to start with Jonathan Rosenbaum from the Chicago Reader, who says, Through the miracle of movies, we all join the Flintstones in becoming living, breathing, snorting garbage disposal units. I'll give him this. He's referencing a joke from the movie. Yeah, he at least saw it. He's He saw it and he got it. Uh, but I don't think he got the rest of the movie. It's Man, that is kind of rude, actually, calling this magnificent cast 
living, breathing, snorting garbage disposal units. I think that, uh, as we just confirmed with re- while referencing the cast of the sequel, like this cast got it right. Oh, like, yeah. Can you think of a better actor to play Fred Flintstone than John Goodman? Honestly, no. Like when I was watching this, I was like, God, this was cast perfectly. Like get that casting director a race and make them executive, <laughs> give them the executive suite <laughs> with the dictabird. Uh, next, Alex Sandal from Juicy Cerebellum says, you won't have a gay old time. No. Alex, are you relieved that this being a movie from the 90s, there was not even a hint of a homophobic joke with that line? Oh, revolving around have a gay old time. Uh huh. Yes. I mean, that's this is a little bit of real talk. I remember that is how I learned the word gay meant happy was through the Flintstones opening theme. And so there's something so pure about that to me still. And so the fact that that purity was maintained in this and not even in the way of like there was some joke that went over my head when I was a little kid, right. there, there, there's no joke about it, which. Had this come out four years later, I think that would have been a little bit different. Oh, you think that it just, we were still safe. <laughs> that was the thing. We we hadn't gotten to that part of the 90s. I'm sure we could find something that'd be like, huh? But uh, it wasn't quite, yeah, that tail end of everything's gay. You know, It was a Eurotrip? Is that what South, you're saying? Yes, I was going to say South Park, but Eurotrip's a good example for a film. All right, well. Let's go. It's not that the 90s were all pure, Alex, because here comes Martin Scribbs with low IQ Canadian, who says, if you spend the whole running time picturing Halle Berry nude on a saber toothed tiger rug, the Flintstones isn't so bad. Can you imagine? (laughs) That was someone's review of a movie today. (laughs) Canceled. They would try to hang him like they do Fred at the end of this movie. (laughs) Uh. Martin Scripps just sitting there in the screen room, 90 minutes. What does uh, Christopher Plummer say in American Beauty? Choking the bishop? Uh, uh, <laughs> just sitting there with his legs crossed, you know, gazing past the screen. He's got that 100-yard stare, just thinking of Halle Berry nude. <laughs> it would only be a few years, and then half his wish would come true with Swordfish. Oh, yeah. I mean, at this age, you know, this stage of my life and the age that I am, this is so much more tantalizing than her actually like nude in a film. I'm just like, damn, dude, look at that costume she's got on. Also, I, I would argue she has more of a character here than she does in Swordfish. Uh, 100%. She, <laughs> she exists to be nude in that movie. Here she exists like as a catalyst in the story. It just so happens that she's very, very pretty. As uh, Elizabeth Perkins says, your secretary is very pretty, John John Goodman. Really? I hadn't noticed. (laughs) (laughs) And Martin Scripps. I did. Yeah, for real. Uh, We're going to close with Susan Tavernetti from Palo Alto Weekly, who says, adults should be forewarned. Yabba dabba, don't go unless you have to. (laughs) Damn. Feels a little, uh, uh, it crosses the line to use the yabba dabba do. On a negative quote. Yeah, for sure. And you have uh, some boundaries. Yabba dabba do. I like talking to you. Screw 
I'm just thinking of like words that rhyme with it that he could have done a better job with. There is the amazing um, like made for lifetime movie within this universe of the movie where it shows Fred, you know, embezzling that money and firing people. And they screw up his catchphrase where the actor playing Fred <laughs> says, yabba dabba dabba. <laughs> That's where uh, Wilma is played by Hayden Pettitier. <laughs> yes. Uh and this is a great example. We come across these every once in a while where critics just cannot help themselves. And like you'll find multiple reviews that incorporate verbiage or like a, a catchphrase from the movie. And this one, you know, the critics that did like this just had to be pigs and shit in terms of all the, <laughs> the opportunities they had. to. Yeah, but here Susan fucked up because I just realized she if she had a music contraction, it would work better. You know, she wrote Yabba Dabba Don't Go. It should be Yabba Dabba Do Not Go. Yes. Amateur. <laughs> well, those are the quotes, Alex. Uh, I, I say we we jump on the on that weird contraption that doesn't have a floor and lets you use your feet to, <laughs> to power yourself through streets. And uh, let's go to the contrarian's corner. You could just say they're cars. But <laughs> <laughs> Yabba Dabba Do. did not remember this came out memorial day weekend this was may 27th of 1994 a budget of 46 million dollars julio do you want to take any stab at the uh box office return it got a sequel so that means that it must have i would say at least triple its budget am i right 341 million dollars so it it did well more than that <laughs> it uh was released by universal and just to give like the the back history leading into it in 1985 producers keith barish and joel silver bought the rights to a live action feature film version of the flintstones and commissioned stephen e de souza to write the script with richard donner hired to direct de souza's script submitted in september of 87 was eventually rejected in october of 1989 a new script by daniel and joshua goldwyn was submitted Peter Martin Wartman and Robert Conti submitted yet another draft in March of 1990 before Mitch Markowitz was hired to write a script. Said to be a cross of the Grapes of Wrath, Markowitz commented that, quote, I don't even remember it that well, but Fred and Barney leave their town during a terrible depression to go across the country or whatever the damn prehistoric thing is looking for jobs. They wind <laughs> up in trailer parks trying to keep their families together. They exhibit moments of heroism and poignancy. Markowitz's version was apparently too sentimental for director Donner, who disliked it. A further draft was then submitted and revised by Jeffrey Reno and Ron Osborne in 1991 and 1992. Eventually, the rights were bought by Amblin Entertainment and Steven Spielberg, who, after working with Goodman on Always, was determined to cast him in the lead as Fred. Brian Levant was hired as director, knowing he was the right person because of his love of the original series. They knew he was an avid fan of the series because of his Flintstone item collection and knowledge he had of the series. So we had, you know, a good crop of characters uh, behind the scenes going into this. The fact that Spielberg put this out, and as the movie opens, a Steven Spielrock movie, um, I, I feel they probably could have done something better with that. But hey, what are you going to do? <laughs> Well, they can't they can't peek with the opening credits. They come that's, close, that's but they, fair. they don't. And then before I forget, uh, there was a tie-in campaign with McDonald's, 
with the McRib because you know there's not that, that still looks pretty prehistoric. The have you ever had a McRib before? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so you know it looks like uh, the cut of meat of it makes it look as though like there's bones in it and shit. It's supposed to look like a big Fred Flintstone style slab of meat. Um, but they had what they were calling as the Grand Poobah meal. It was. <laughs> A supersized soda and French fries along with the McRib for only three dollars and thirty-eight cents. We used to be a proper nation, Julio. <laughs> I'm assuming the the cops were Flintstones themed. Collect them all. You have Kyle McLachlan staring at you. Oh man, I, I I need all of it. I need every piece of memorabilia <laughs> from this movie that has Kyle McLachlan's face on it. Just <laughs> we'll get to him in a minute. So, you know, this was treated as a big movie, and I did verify Rosie O'Donnell did not yet have her television show. That would come in 1996, but she was still a big celebrity. Rick Moranis, obviously a big name in the kids movie genre with Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, uh, and then even, you know, something like Ghostbusters. And John Goodman, I mean, after this, they called him John Greatman. Um, <laughs> just that's a joke completely stolen from on cinema at the cinema and uh so mcdonald's they went the whole route of you know advertising to kids and whatnot and it paid off and you know you would think also the flintstones late 50s mm, 1960 was when it premiered so at the time the conversation you and I have had several times of movies that come out, it's like, is this still relevant to kids? Is this going to, you know, something recently like Super Mario has done such a good job of staying relevant for 40 years in the pop culture zeitgeist that, you know, a movie comes out and it does really well. Flintstones, same thing. You and I both just said, yeah, we don't really remember being kids when the Flintstones wasn't around. And so this, this paid off. It was a venture that, you know, let's see what happens. It worked well one time. Because in 2000, when the Flintstones Viva Rock Vegas came out, somehow the budget was double, $83 million, with a box office return of less than $60 million. So Wait, are you telling me they paid Stephen Baldwin more than they paid Rick Moranis? Mark Addy, Stephen Baldwin, Kristen Johnson, and Jane Krakowski, the, our quartet here. I mean, oh, I'm sorry, Alan Cummings is in it too, so. That's uh, <laughs> the new Kyle McLachlan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> shit ain't cheap but that's just preposterous like you know one the idea of the budget being more but two just um just give up if you can't get the original cast back, exactly just... I, I was just about to say how did they think they were going to do better than this julio this is it this is they they nailed it they, they got everything in 90 minutes the friendship with the between barney and fred the marriage between fred and wilma the love between bam bam and his parents, his adoptive parents, they got the whole package and Halle Berry looking hot as hell. That's it. <laughs> Quit while you're ahead. And Elizabeth Taylor, for some reason. Uh, in prehistoric suburban bedrock, Slate and Co.'s new vice president, Cliff Vandercave, and secretary Sharon Stone discuss their plan to swindle the company of its vast fortune, pin the theft on an employee, and flee. Fred Flintstone loans his best friend and neighbor, Barney Rubble, money so that he and his wife, Betty, can adopt a little boy named Bam Bam, who can only pronounce his own name. 
Though initially hard to control because of his super strength, Bam Bam eventually warms up to his new family and befriends Fred's daughter, Pebbles. Despite his mother-in-law, Pearl Slag Hoople's objections, Fred's wife, Wilma, remains supportive of his decision to loan the Rubbles the money. So, Julio, when this movie started and we had like those shots of bedrock, could you just hear me salivating at all of these practical <laughs> sets? I, I did. I, I, I could... I don't know about salivation, but I could sense your your pride, your overwhelming joy. Also, I started trying to spot like the, okay, what is digital and what is practical? Because there's no way it's all practical. I think that with Dino in particular, right? Like sometimes he's yeah, animatronic, sometimes he's CGI. Exactly. And the cat also. There's some really primitive CG with uh, Dino, like when he's, you know, running at Fred and tackling him and whatnot. Uh, but for the most part, aside from Dino and the cat and maybe a couple of the other, uh, obviously the dinosaurs that are there, um, Spielberg didn't lend him, you know, <laughs> shit from Jurassic Park. But <laughs> he was on a dinosaur high, though. It was like 93 was Jurassic Park. It's like, OK, what else can I do with dinosaurs? That's true. He's like, I need more, more. How can I incorporate John Goodman? <laughs> I'm just going to sit back and enjoy it. He was just like on set drinking the whole time. Just like, this is awesome. <laughs> More. <laughs> louder. Sal belly, powder beans, fire rope around her jeans. Tell your mom not to wait. You ain't coming home too late. Yeah, 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 Twitch. <laughs> I did note Elizabeth Taylor gets the uh, and credit. And reintroducing Elizabeth Taylor. What has she done before the Flintstones? In the last 10 years or something. Let's see. I kind of feel like with Elizabeth Taylor, after Cleopatra, it's just, that's it. She disappeared from the limelight. The shame washed over her. I was like, no more. Prior to the Flintstones, in the 80s, she had done The Mirror Cracked and Young Tuscanini. And that was in 1988. And the Flintstones is her last theatrical credit. God damn, going out with a bang. No shit getting eaten by a dinosaur at the end of this. One of the funniest parts of the movie. Uh, <laughs> all right. So we start here with the Flintstones having a way more adult oriented, like uh, plot than anything I remember from the television show in that the rebels are hard up for money. And Fred loans him the money they need for this adoption process without telling his wife. And, you know, he comes home from work and she's like, there's no money in our savings account. What's going on? That is something that as a kid, you're like, yeah, whatever. But you watch this as an adult. You're like, God damn, that's a pretty intense adult <laughs> theme for the Flintstones. That that sets up the friendship between Barney and Fred right away, which is probably the most important thing you need to set up in this movie is just how much they care for each other, even though they tease and, the, you know, they tease each other and they, they're very different people in a way. But just you need to establish that friendship. Um, what's the deal here? Is, is Barney shooting blanks? Is that the... Is oh, I didn't, I didn't even think of that as the implication, but maybe <laughs> he's shooting rubble. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to hurt. <laughs> Just a horrendous case of kidney stones. <laughs> uh, I now I just I'm just picturing Rick Moranis pissing blood. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Fred, what's going on, Fred? <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I remember the cartoon, yeah, uh, Bam Bam was adopted, and yet I never really thought about the difference between, I mean, why is he adopted when Pebbles isn't, right? Mm -hmm. And 
this movie, I think it's designed very, it's very well designed to just have the, the story that plays for the kids and then the stuff that plays for the adults. And so I think that any kid sitting down to watch this is not going to question like like we are because we're adults. Uh, hey, w- what's the deal? Why can't they have kids or anything? All they're going to see is two friends. One needed money. The other one gave him money. Uh, I guess Bam Bam has to be adopted to explain his super strength, right? That's the... That's he the was raised, raised by wildebeests, yeah. Uh, did you catch the joke when they go to adopt him, the Harry and the Hendersons joke? I did. I did. Yeah. I almost made a note of it, and I was like, nah, that's too niche. And then here you are, outdoing me. <laughs> so for those who haven't seen the film, uh, the film, like it's fucking avant-garde. <laughs> <laughs> they are at the adoption office, and the agent brings out the child and says, here's your baby. And it's, uh, and a, uh, it's a monkey. It's a literal... An actual monkey, not an a animatronic. Chi- yeah, 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 a chimpanzee. And... They're like, what the hell? It's like, no, not for you. This is for the Henderson family. And then everyone turns and winks at the camera. Yeah, uh, except that you expect John Lithgow to be, you know, when they pan, it's going to be John Lithgow. No, it's it's just another set of chimpanzees. So they didn't go all the way. Like Spielberg was not as powerful as, as he is now. So between the adoption and, you know, actually showing the adoption process and then also, you know, the uh, display of financial strife, it just it makes the Flintstones and their friends human. It humanizes them and shows that, you know, they have real life problems too. Uh, One of the things that isn't a problem is their pastimes. In the case of Fred and Barney, they're part of a bowling league. And uh, in said bowling league is the recently departed Richard Mall, who was a a great character actor, um, very over the top with facial expressions. And he had that very deep voice and, and this, He's part of the group that dunks their head into that giant mug of beer they get. And uh, he do you know who I'm talking about? Uh, Night Court, right? Yes. Yes, exactly. And then the other friend they have in their group is Erwin Keys, who is another kind of I wouldn't consider him a character actor, but more of a that guy. He was in House of a Thousand Corpses. I was trying to remember which one it was. (laughs) Not Night Court. Definitely not Night Court. He was in a lot of things. I don't mean to diminish Erwin Key's contributions to television and film, but he um, he's the clown. He's in the big clown head, and he comes in and kills those dudes with Sid Haig um, that try to rob the the fried chicken stand. So, of course, that you know that's how my brain works. I'm watching this kid's <laughs> movie, and that's immediately what I think of. I mean, this movie pushes at you. To, to go more adult places as an adult. Tremendous. Um, we already mentioned the twinkle toes. When Fred rolls the ball, we get the sound effect from the cartoon, which Julio, you know, if that was done today where they directly lift the sound from the source material and put it in there, there's some people you would think would roll their eyes or say that kind of diminishes the source material or whatnot. I think for how how much levity and just goofiness there is to the tone of this movie. Uh, I think it works perfectly. I think today they would overdo it. They would have somebody comment on it. Like, look, look at Fred. He bowls like a cartoon. That's the, that's the sound chain. So here it's just perfect. They just leave it there. If you've never seen the cartoon, you're like, Oh, that's quirky. That's a quirky decision, quirky way to go with, with the bowling. Uh, But if you've seen it, uh, it's funny. It must be one of the most, 
recognizable things from the cartoon if you and I remember it and we are not Flintstones experts. Exactly. And something else that we should go ahead and talk about is the theme song from the, the Flintstones. You've heard it on The Office. You've heard it on The Simpsons. You know, Flintstones, meet the Flintstones, or even just that. Mm, 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 mm. And in this, we don't get it till the very end. The very the movie ends recreating the opening credits of the, the cartoon. But what we do get from the score for this movie, which if I remember from the credits was da- uh, David Newman, um, we get the theme, but in different like iterations and inflections throughout it. There's like pensive Fred at one point. <laughs> and then there's the whimsical when things are going well. <laughs> do, do you know what I'm talking sweet. about? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but we do get, Alex, we, we do get the recreation of the opening credits at the beginning. And then at the end. I mean, so we get the opening credits at the beginning. And then, then they go and start watching the movie that we are watching. And then... Then the closing oh, credits right. are recreated they, at the end. Yeah, they. That's right. Good call, man. They we we get sandwiched. It's it's like watching an episode, except it's live action and it's ninety minutes. Damn, well done. And it's like Inception, because <laughs> because the end. That's right. Because when they go home, when he gets the giant rib and tips the car over, and then you know goes home and throws the cat out. Yeah, and then lets out the the moment John Goodman <laughs> was built for. <laughs> I, I want to see those audition tapes. All the other actors that were doing okay until they had to scream, Wilma! <laughs> Elizabeth Taylor, we already mentioned it. Is it at all jarring for you that she shows up in this movie? Or is it more of just like, how fun is that? It was more as, uh, why is that? <laughs> <laughs> I, I did, but, but I knew it was coming. Like I saw it in the credits. And I'm like, that Elizabeth Taylor? I mean, it has to be. Otherwise, why do you give her the end credit? And and she's there. And then I'm like, all right. So it's got to be that that one scene cameo where she's the, the annoying mother-in-law. And then she walks out and we never see her again. But no, she's there through the movie. Um, she has a couple funny lines. It's, I guess she's a Flintstones fan. I don't know. He robs your nest egg to bail out that little troll next door while my daughter has to wash her clothes in the river. I got half of mine. Oh, don't flatter yourself. One of the enticements that coaxed Elizabeth Taylor back onto the big screen after a six-year absence was that proceeds from the film's premiere would go to her AIDS foundation. So in addition to being fun, there was actually like some good merit behind it. Look at that. Who says Hollywood is all cynicism? Yeah, especially when it comes to something like the Flintstones. (laughs) And then our last character to cover here before we move along with the plot is uh, Cliff Vandercave, as he's known. Uh, You and I, most of the Contrarians universe, would know him as Jeffrey Beaumont from Blue Velvet. Oh, I thought you were going to say Showgirls. Oh, I don't remember his name in Showgirls, but... I'm curious if more people more people probably associate him with Twin Peaks than Blue Velvet, don't you think? I I am almost ashamed to say that I think of him exclusively in Showgirls terms. And I, I still don't wow. remember his name because that's just I'm sorry, that's a big stain on a distinguished filmography. It is. Like, sorry. I man. mean myself personally, Trey McDougal is always what I think of because he was Charlotte's husband on Sex in the City, but I, I'm not going to push that narrative on people. <laughs> I look if you look at Kyle McLachlan and you don't think Showgirls, good for you. You made good decisions in your life. Unfortunately, <laughs> Showgirls is one of those memorable episodes 
and the contrarians because we both hated it so much and he's part of it and uh i had honestly forgotten that he was in blue velvet <laughs> oh you're my right. god julio <laughs> i know i'm sorry ben uh, it just like i said the the stench of showgirls it just works backwards and forwards uh showgirls this- I, you'll be happy to know that showgirls was his follow-up to the flintstones <laughs> I know we've talked before about the the amazing career choices that Kyle MacLachlan has done. I will not be pigeonholed. Uh, so this tracks. But also, maybe this will be the thing that finally gets him over that uh, that showgirl's hump in my mind. And, and now I'll think of him as the bad guy in the Flintstones movie. Because this is fucking memorable. Walk me through the, you know, you're Steven Spielberg, you're Brian Levant, and... You're casting for the Flintstones. You immediately think, "Oh, the guy from Dune, like he'll, he'll be, <laughs> he'll be the bad guy." And obviously, Blue Velvet was uh, almost ten years prior to this, and he did uh, the the Twin Peaks uh, Fire Walk with Me in 1992. I mean, I don't think it was up to Spielberg and Levant. I think that they walked into their offices, and David Lynch and Kyle MacLachlan were just like sitting there already. <laughs> 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 and uh, David Lynch used, you know, those uh, umbrellas that have like the, the circles to hypnotize people. And he just started yes. spitting it. And he was like, you will cast this man as the bad guy in your movie. And that was it. Spielberg woke up the next day and he had just this idea planted in his head. Cole Kyle McLachlan met him. And you know what? It was for everybody's benefit because he is great. He's- I was about to say, he's having so much fun with this. So what we know we followed up with, he followed up with Showgirls. What did he do before the Flintstones? Uh, before the Flintstones was a, a film called Against the Wall, which was directed by John Frankenheimer, and it starred Kyle MacLachlan and Samuel L. Jackson. It is a docudrama and is a partially fictionalized account of the four-day Attica prison riot in 1971. <laughs> so something very much on tone with the Flintstones. All right, now one for the kids. Uh, he is, uh, unfortunately for him, Halle Berry is in this cast. But discounting Halle Berry, he's this the, the most attractive person in the in the movie, mm-hmm. uh, which is something that's always cool when it happens to your bad guy, you know, because you're supposed to hate oh, him. Yeah. But at the same time, you're yeah. kind of like in awe of like, man, that hair and that posture and the costumes they give him, like the the what do you call them pelts, right? Like mm-hmm. his pelts are always like. Uh, a level above everybody else's. He, he looks great, and whenever he puts his feet up, like everybody does in this movie, they're not dirty, <laughs> like everybody else's. Does he secretly wear shoes in the prehistoric times? He's just that advanced. I don't know, but he's he's awesome. Early contender for the Embrys, but I think that I think that I will say that about most people in this cast. Cliff holds an aptitude test. With the worker with the highest mark becoming the company's new vice president, Barney gets the highest score but switches his paper. It's not a paper; it's a it's a slate. It's <laughs> like what the rock. yeah, what the Ten Commandments were etched on. He switches his <laughs> with Fred, whom he knows will fail. Fred receives a promotion complete with executive perks such as a luxurious office and Stone appointed as his secretary to test Fred's willingness to follow orders. Cliff asks him to fire Barney, who, with Fred's test paper, had the lowest score in the company. 
Though Fred is unwilling to fire him, he reluctantly accepts but continues to help Barney support his family, even inviting the Rebels to live with them so that they can rent out their house. However, Fred's job and newfound wealth eventually hinder his relationship with Wilma and the Rebels. Cliff eventually tricks Fred into dismissing the other workers. Uh, dismissing is an interesting word. This must be translated from something. But uh, basically, <laughs> Fred just he gets into this position very much um, when Homer became the sanitation commissioner. Just starts signing shit without looking at it. They let me sign with a stamp, Marge. A stamp. <laughs> Here he has to uh, etch his X uh, granite every time. That's a lot more work. Yeah. And that's why I probably wouldn't read it either. I'd just be like, fuck it. <laughs> he does try to read it at one point because he mentions like contractors working on his home and Halle Berry's like, no. Don't, don't read much further. And then, you know, she lays on the desk in an extremely inappropriate manner for a children's movie and everything's okay. That's the, the bit that every parent rewinded the movie to after they were done with the kids. Man, I always remember Halle Berry just being so hot in this that I forgot when they were rich for that portion of the movie and Elizabeth Perkins is dressing all sultry. It's just like, God damn, pal. Get Josh Josh Baskins back in the fold here. <laughs> Turning the lights on. Uh, I, I get what you're saying, but I... She, she I doesn't mean, take the shine from Halle Berry. I just didn't remember her looking that good. I think that there's two different uh, feelings. Because one is the feeling of the Wilma character, who is always very reserve kind of conservative in the way she dresses in the way she behaves and and so whenever you take one of those characters and you give them the moment where they kind of loosen up and they they look a little more extroverted and a little they dress a little sexier uh that's always kind of jolting in a good way right <laughs> unless you go too far and you're like what the fuck is happening that's not my hashtag not my wilma but here i think that they they do it. She still looks classy. You're like, yeah, she that would be Wilma with money. Now, Halle Berry, her character is designed to be a bombshell from the beginning. And she just owns it. As soon as you see her, she's just sultry. And the way that she walks, just swaying her hips and uh, the cleavage. This is her, true. Her pelt. It was just kudos to the filmmakers. Uh, well, for- she got to set, too, and saw that she was playing opposite Kyle MacLachlan. And she was like, God damn, I got to step it up. <laughs> She was used to being the hottest person on set, and then suddenly, oh, this will be a challenge. God damn. It's the guy from Blue Velvet. <laughs> She's a big fan of Dune. Uh, it's good stuff, man. I I did not expect the Flintstones to be sexually charged. And it is. Like, I thought, because you'd warn me about this. I mean, hell, the reason why we're doing the Flintstones on this show is because you put forth this as the as the Halle Berry movie on the live stream for the cure like this mm-hmm. is what we're gonna do if we hit the Halle Berry tier and you said it's because Halle Berry is really hot in it and I'm like sure that's a good reason I did not expect that to translate into Halle Berry is gonna be really hot and she's going to actually be about you know she's going to use her sexuality to move the plot along I mean this is just it's not just that she they put a pelt on her and it happened that she looked good it just she's specifically her character is designed to kind of seduce fred into mm-hmm. or distract fred with her looks and she, she's almost like a femme fatale you know if I, the, I wouldn't call the flintstones a noir but i think that the character is basically lifted she's <laughs> she's maybe the closest we've gotten 
on live action to uh, uh, Jessica Rabbit. <laughs> I made this joke on Twitter, and I told you, I warned you, I'm going to use it on the show because I think it's it, it hits the truth. And that is that this movie hits the Pixar formula of having stuff for the kids, having stuff for the, for the parents. And <laughs> I'm going to say dads everywhere must have been very happy with the way that the, <laughs> the Halle Berry character plays out. My old man at the drive-in had to be very pleased, you know, with his kids nodding off in the back seat, and he's here watching the Flintstones. There was at least Halle Berry, uh, and to a lesser extent, Elizabeth Perkins to keep him invested. <laughs> On the way back, stopping at McDonald's, I'll have the Halle Berry cup. <laughs> Mr. Flintstone, I'd like you to know that I enjoy working long hours, late nights, even weekends. So feel free to use me. However you see fit. So he has the dicta bird, which warns him about signing these documents without looking at them. Uh, and what he ends up doing is just releasing, firing all of the workers at Slayton Co. Uh, all the grunt workers, you know, all his friends, Richard Mall, out of a job. And... <laughs> This is part of the plan that uh, Cliff Vandercave is going to frame Fred for embezzlement, and they're going to end up taking all the money and running off, et cetera, et cetera. How is the Dictaberg not voiced by Mel Brooks? What happened? Oh, man, that's a good call. Like it the was, one moment where they dropped the ball with the casting. Who was it? It was um, Harvey Corman was the voice. Uh, Corman was the voice of the Great Gazoo in the original animated series. So that's kind of an appreciated deep cut if, if you... Yeah. If this was made today, that's something you and I would be like, give it the golf clap over. <laughs> so they're fired. Later, Barney confronts Fred after seeing workers riot uh, on the news and after revealing that he had switched the test with Fred, moves out with Betty. Wilma and Pebbles also leave for Pearl's house. They're Wilma's mother, Pebbles' grandmother, and they leave Fred behind. Fred goes to the quarry and discovers Cliff's plans and tries getting Mr. Slate to fire Cliff. However, having manipulated the events to make it look as though Fred stole money, Cliff has reported the theft to the police. Fred flees, but a manhunt ensues both by the police and fired workers. Wilma and Betty see this on the news, break into Slate and Co. and get the dicta bird, the only witness who can clear Fred's name unaware that Cliff saw them from the office window. As the disguised Fred enters the worker's cave, he is discovered, and the workers try hanging him. That's uh, We'll get back to that in just a second. <laughs> when Barney shows up as a snow cone truck driver, the workers also try to hang him when he admits his role in the events. Fred and Barney reconcile before Wilma, Betty, and the Dictabird save them, and Wilma and the Dictabird tell the workers that Cliff was the one who fired them in order to frame Fred. Then the workers hear a story from the Dictabird about what Cliff was doing in the office. All right, a lot to unpack here, but the main thing, <laughs> I forgot to mention the party where they fire, he fires Barney. They have the surprise party because he got his promotion. There's a great joke of Betty has this tray of deviled eggs and they are just gigantic, you know, because they <laughs> use dinosaur eggs. I, I thought that was very funny. Dino um, you know, dancing on the conga line, CGI or practical? That was CG because I, I was watching that. I was like, man, imagine those primitive days of, okay, so you're just going to like pretend something's here and. <laughs> Yeah, and like, oh. the Taylor's final <laughs> yeah, movie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> what will they think of next? And now, you know, that's how they're trained to do shit. 
we do get a dinner scene where during the height of Fred and Wilma's posh lifestyle, they go to the swankiest place in town. And you best believe we get a cameo from the B-52s. The B-52s, which I would have recognized them just because the voice of the guy. I'm like, hey, Love Shack. In this movie, they are known as the BC-52s. Thank you. But uh, <laughs> I, I can't remember the words, but something about, I know a place called Bedrock. Twitch, Twitch. It's such a <laughs> B-52 song. Uh this is where it gets ugly. I mean, this is, well, for one, the Barney's subplot about being unemployed and then kind of trying different jobs. Uh, you know, first he, he, so he moves in with the, with the Flintstones. It's like they're friends, but there's also this level of condescension uh, between Fred and Barney. I mean, it's always been there, but now that he literally, he's just, <laughs> Barney's unemployed and he's, Fred is doing him a solid. I think like that amplifies things. And so there's like some ugly tension between them that I, I don't know if there was ever on the show. And uh, definitely if it was, it's the kind of thing that, you know, kids don't think about. But when you're watching as an adult, I'm like, man, this, this sucks because they're friends, but it's also, this is the kind of thing that can destroy a relationship. And it does. And, and just seeing Barney constantly try to find jobs and them not working out. I mean, that was kind of stressful. Uh, I'm sure kids found it hilarious. And that's good. I mean, it's a movie for kids. But as an adult, that was like, God. <laughs> it, of course, it was going to end up with him as a waiter waiting on his friends and being embarrassed about it. And it just, it gets real. You know, they 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 say some really nasty things to each other. And I appreciated it as watching as an adult that somebody called out Fred on being such a dick. He is an asshole in this movie for sure. Yeah, but so is he always an asshole? Is he an asshole as a cartoon? Yeah, we just I I maybe. Maybe I just am forgetting <laughs> that, but uh when they're at that fancy dinner, I was trying to find this and maybe I just didn't look hard enough, but um did you notice when Rick Moranis is like the bus boy, he pulls the tablecloth off the table and nothing moves? It really uh-huh. looks like he did that. Like, it really looks like Rick Moranis did that. And I don't know if they tricked it up or something, but it's one of those. It's a one shot. And I was trying to find out if like my hope was I was going to find something that it took like 76 takes for them to do that. And, <laughs> you know, there was just growing tension on set and Spielberg had to, like, calm everybody down. So, so Moranis really punch Goodman for real. Yeah, man. He threw a haymaker at him. <laughs> Uh, I mean, it's Rick Moranis. He's very talented. I'll buy that he just did it. He did it in one take. Hell, it is amazing. Well, actually, let me finish this point, which is that at this at this moment in the movie, when it got so nasty, that's when I thought, all right, so maybe this explains the the dual rottenness on the tomato meter here. Uh, was America and the world, were we not ready to see the Flintstones get this ugly with each other? Even if maybe they got, they had some sort of tension when they were a cartoon, but then when you see a live action, and it's like real people doing it, and and it escalates to this level. Like, is it just too much? And that's when people went like, "Oh no, <laughs> the the classic now." Like what you hear every weekend now. Like, "Oh, you're ruining my childhood," and blah blah blah. Like, is that what happened? Was did the Flintstones get too real? Because now I appreciate it, but then again, I don't have that connection with the original material, so maybe that's why I can just enjoy. You know, that they, mm-hmm. they they took it to that level. But then the other thing I was going to say is every comedian must be thankful that Rick Moran is retired 
because I think he is the funniest man alive. And he, the way I, you know, you don't see that many Rick Moranis movies. Uh, obviously, he doesn't make them anymore. But, but even, you know, I feel like his body of work is not as extensive as somebody like like Bill Murray, for example, just take it to Ghostbusters. So mm-hmm. then you you watch him in something like this. I'm like, oh, that's right. That's Rick Moranis fucking killing it. He he has, I don't know, a third of screen time maybe that John Goodman does. But he, I think he outshines everybody else in the cast. And, and the cast is great. But I think Moranis is the MVP. Would you agree? Or do you have a, a different favorite? No, I think that's that's probably right. It's um, I think John Goodman just does such a good job of, you know, looking and sounding like Fred that I kind of get enchanted by that. But you're right. Moranis is also someone that we watch now and realize we didn't appreciate what we had. Mm-hmm. We thought it was going to go on for longer. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're like Party was never going to end. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he's, he's great here because he pulls off the dramatic weight of this confrontation. Uh, but then he's back to being funny later on. We'll get to the hanging, but that's, I was laughing out loud during that scene and it was mostly because of Moranis. We'll, we'll see if it's the same thing we laughed at. Uh. <laughs> Tell me something, Mr. Vice President. What's a graduated inventory plan? Huh? How about supply and demand? Hey, Fred, what's two and two? I didn't come here to talk business. I'm out with my wife. Unfortunately, we get a cameo by Jay Leno because it is the, the mid-90s. You know, we can't have the B-52s and expect it to all be sunshine and rainbows. The universe must balance itself. Uh, yeah. do you think, did they ask Leno or did Leno ask? No, I don't. I'm, he was the host of Bedrock's Most Wanted. That's where they do the, I mentioned earlier, the dramatization. That threw me off, even though then I checked. That's the one thing I checked. And I was like, oh, they did have TVs in the cartoon. Because that's like I buy all the technology, in quotation marks, in this world. Mm-hmm. I think that's the best part of the movie. Uh, in uh, As far as the... Uh, how they realize this prehistoric world and how they have all the gadgets and our dinosaurs and the things that are all just like stone and it it works like you buy it right and and uh, then it gets to the TV and I was like hang on that's just a bit too far <laughs> there's no electricity what's going on here that's uh, exactly dude my sister watches with me and she's like all right how are they doing radio broadcasts <laughs> she's like how's their uh, yeah. Julio you ready to have your mind blown yes okay so. We have Jay Leno as the host of Bedrock's Most Wanted. And then, as we mentioned, you know, they do the dramatic retelling of the Fred Flintstone story. Did you happen to catch who played the Cliff Vandercave character in the dramatization? No, I was hung up on trying to figure out who Fred was, and I couldn't figure it out. One Samuel Raimi. Like the director, Sam Raimi? Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> of Evil Dead and Spider-Man fame. I mean, <laughs> sure. <laughs> I I am used to his brother showing up in movies out of nowhere. Uh, if you had told me Ted Raimi, I'd be like, sure. Well, how is this news? But Sam Raimi. 
I found this uh, entry on a website. It was like a thread. It looks like a forum or something, but it said, uh, The Flintstone stars John Goodman was written by 35 people and was directed by Brian Levant. It also inexplicably features a cameo by one of my favorite directors. I have no idea why, but Sam Raimi is in four blurry frames of this thing. <laughs> You'd never know, but it is completely true. I don't think I could invent something so tailor-made to my interest as Sam Raimi is in The Flintstones 1994. <laughs> So there's a little fun trivia for y'all. Another thing I really enjoyed was when he was indicted, we get like the shot of like the the newspaper that says Flintstone indicted and the picture they used in the newspaper was the actual cartoon yep. of Fred Flintstone. I thought that was a nice touch. You see it a couple uh, times because when he gets a promotion, he also there's a newspaper that has that picture there. You're right. You're right. Good call. So, yeah, I, I mentioned kind of what happens in the plot and the workers find Fred and they quarter and draw him and uh like I was watching him like what are they going to do like throw him off the cliff or something <laughs> and then they bust out a fucking noose like they're going to hang him <laughs> and they throw it over a tree it's pretty fucking intense and then as I mentioned Barney pulls up and they're going to hang him too he's driving a snow cone cart now <laughs> and he you know there's, he's talking to Fred and they're kind of making up as they're about to be lynched there by the mob and his snow cone cart is <laughs> meanwhile getting ransacked and looted <laughs> And then, like, the line that just killed me was this woman who, like, takes a snow cone, comes up. She's like, she says, I took a cherry. And then she offers, like, you know, whatever the little rock they use as money is. And Rick Moranis <laughs> goes, oh, no, I can't break a 20. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody else comes by. He's like, do you have any chocolate? He's like, look in the back. <laughs> <laughs> Prime stuff here, man. Tremendous comedy. <laughs> Meanwhile, the bedrock rednecks are like gonna have us a good time boys yeah they're cranking up the merle haggard and getting ready to hang fred and uh barney when wilma and betty the women are the ones actually getting shit done they reveal the evil conspiracy to everybody when the flintstones and rebels return home they find it burglarized with dino and pearl tied up and pebbles and bam bam gone the group finds a note from cliff saying he will trade the children for the dictabird fred and barney confront cliff at the quarry where cliff has tied pebbles and bam bam to a huge machine though they hand him the dictabird cliff activates the machine to stall them barney rescues the children while fred destroys the machine uh, it's the machine is basically what they were going to use to replace the workers to build homes. And, right. You know, so it was smash. it was already set to it, it wasn't going to work. It was going to self-destruct anyway, because that's what yeah. Kyle McLaughlin says. Um, Halle Berry, uh, I guess you would call this a baby face turn. There you go. <laughs> uh, I mean, we see it coming. They telegraph it pretty well. I, I enjoyed it. You know, she can tell that Kyle McLaughlin is going to betray her uh, or just leave her behind. So she she switches teams, and it's very satisfying. She shows up to save the day. She does. Uh, she The Dictabird escapes from Cliff and lures him back to the quarry, where uh, Halle Berry incapacitates him, having had a change of heart after learning of Cliff's plans to betray her. Like Sami Zayn at the Royal Rumble this year, sometimes the most telegraphed <laughs> babyface turns are the best ones. Who would betray Halle Berry? Like, can you imagine being Kyle McLachlan and not taking Halle Berry to Rocapulco? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
The police, Wilma, Betty, and Mr. Slate arrive as Cliff attempts to escape, but is encased by a substance falling from the machine. This is great. This is where we learn the invention of concrete, because Fred explains that the rocks got smashed up and then mixed with the water, and then this happens, and then Mr. Slate's like, what an incredible invention. I'm going to name it after my daughter, Concretia. <laughs> so Fred, getting back to work with Mr. Slate, asks for the workers to be rehired, and makes plans to produce concrete with Fred leading the division. Having experienced the negatives of wealth and status, Fred declines the offer uh, and asks the workers be given two weeks paid leave as part of their salary, amongst other benefits, preferring to return to his old life. So he he's going to go back to the, the floor, the grunt work, as it were. He learned with, his uh, place. He did. I mean, not everybody is cut out for upper management. Not everyone can be a quarterback, man. You know, you can be a follower, be the best follower you can be. <laughs> need wide receivers, need a good center, need running backs. I mean, there's there's places for everybody in this world. And Fred Flintstone learned his. Uh, Halle Berry does get arrested because I thought this was a good lesson, too, for kids, even though she learned, you know, uh, she moralistically came around in the end. She still committed a crime. So she gets hauled off. And uh, there is that thing of. When she's walking off, like, you know, John Goodman's gaze lasts just a second longer than it should. I, I cannot believe that they actually gave her the line of been a bad girl. Oh, Jesus. I forgot about that. <laughs> Please spank me, Mr. Flintstone. It's amazing. So in the closing sequence, there's two things I want to call out. Um, when the dicta bird is being marched across to Kyle McLaughlin for like the exchange, he turns to the camera and goes, I should have been in a Disney movie. I would, I wouldn't be in this situation or something to that effect. And then also possibly the hardest I laughed in the entire movie. Cause I completely forgot anything resembling it is when Fred is uh, Barney gets knocked out trying to save the kids. And Fred goes, I got to think of something. And then the thought cloud comes <laughs> from his head and it's his mother-in-law, Liz Taylor being eaten by a dinosaur. And he just starts laughing to himself. That's such like a Simpsons joke. That's, that's fantastic. I will call out that Kyle McLaughlin, when he realizes that Fred Flintstone is, is about to ruin his plan. Oh, he sees a uh, Wilma and Betty running away with the bird, he goes, son of a Brachiosaurus. <laughs> <laughs> and then he, when they called cut, he just like turned and looked off into the clouds and goes, it's come to this, huh? <laughs> I, I, I think Kyle McLaughlin, he, he turned to the director and said, huh? was that good? Do you want another one? <laughs> bigger. <laughs> yeah. LeVon just, bigger, God damn it. <laughs> But it's a it's a happy ending. All's well that ends well. And as Julio called out, we get the closing credits from the cartoon. So what happened? So they so they, they they made a movie of the events that had happened and they asked Fred and Marty and everybody else if they would play themselves. Bwah. <laughs> And uh, they get home and John Goodman's life had built up to this moment. He just lets out with <laughs> such conviction and verver. Fantastic. Can you imagine if that's the first thing they shot? Like, all right, Goodman. <laughs> Let's see what you're made of. So good. Well, that was that was the Flintstones. <laughs> A movie apparently everybody hates. Yeah. Siskel and Ebert, two thumbs down, multiple Golden Raspberry nominations. I mean, come on. Just on the strength of Halle Berry's uh, screen presence. 
this should be a good memory for everyone involved. Uh, let's go to real talk and find out how we really feel. Let's do. Ladies and gentlemen, 